If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Chorology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 24. Jesus calls us to build our house on the rock, right? Our bodies are temples of God, they're houses for the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that we nurture our bodies and take care of them physically, also the way we construct our identities in a spiritual metaphysical sense their houses too. Suan Shaw is a Taiwanese-American musician, filmmaker, and emerging reformed theologian specializing in identity formation, racial justice, gender, and sexuality. Her first feature-length documentary, Huan Dao, premiered in fall 2016 in Nashville, and in addition to her own creative and theological work, she collaborates with other artists and musicians in a variety of capacities as an artist manager, producer, audio engineer, songwriter, and creator of liturgy. Y'all, you're in for a treat today. Uh, We're talking about identity, and especially that pesky question that I think we often get asked of, why isn't your identity in Christ? This is the work that Suen kind of specializes in. She leads workshops on it and approaches it from a philosophical standpoint. And let me tell you, I have taken multiple graduate level philosophy courses, and the way that Sue Ann breaks things down in this episode is like nothing I have ever heard before. And things just started clicking for me. And like, I mean, you'll hear it, but like, so good. So, so, so good. Uh, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Sue Ann, hi. Hi, Matthias. How are you doing today? I'm feeling a lot of feelings. Are you? <laughs> I am. Is yeah. that is that based off the weather or just, just how the day's going? Or Oh, the that... weather is, it's been raining all day here yeah. in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Oh, same very, very gloomy. here in Seattle. It's been, I've been. But isn't I've, it always raining in Seattle? I mean, yeah, but today's one of those particular days where I've like, I sat in my chair for most of the morning with my coffee cup, just like staring out the window, feeling everything. <laughs> I've been listening to uh, Julian Baker's new record. Yeah. So I've been feeling all of those feelings while the rain pitter-patters outside. Yes. So, That album, like, uh, I've been listening to that album this week, too. It's like perfect rainy day listening. Like, oh, my gosh. Yes. Uh, So good. (laughs) So to start, um, the question I ask everyone, how do you identify? uh, And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? So for me... When I think about who I am and what has most defined my life, um, it's it is like my faith. That is the one thing that most defines my life. Um, being a Christian and um, Jesus. So everything else that I've ever formed has been through that that identity and that understanding of uh, of of my relationship with God. And so. Um, you know, I converted when I was 13 and um, and I really took to heart all these ideas about, you know, the old man dying and the new man and you being a new creation and 
and this idea that I had a whole nother life that I was going to be living now in Jesus and uh, and who knew what that was going to be. So um, I figured out, you know, when I was around 14, 15, um, you know, I had a call to do uh, art stuff. So I, you know, I served in my church doing music, doing drama, um, trying to figure out kind of like where I want to go from there. And I got, I remember it was at a youth retreat when I was like 15 and I had been really interested in music, but I remember at that youth retreat, the calling to me to pursue music, to be an artist was very, uh, it was, it just was, I just knew. So um, from there I, you know, went forward and, um, and I tried to, I decided, you know, this is what I'm going to be, a, it's going to be a part of me, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm making money off of this or not. Um, I'm someone who's passionate about uh, creating about art and its power to serve the kingdom and transform people's lives. Um, I, because I was a convert, I had like a lot of really interesting experiences going into Christian subculture, which most people grow up in. And uh, one of the things I was like very bitter about was I was jealous of all my friends whose parents and families were Christians and they would like pray together all the time and go to church together and I was like deeply envious of this because all I wanted was a family like this like a family together as for me in my house we'll serve the Lord and um and you know you had um Amber has Cantora is how, yeah. do you, how do you say it? Amber Cantora on, yeah. on, Amber mm-hmm. Cantora on your podcast I listened to it recently I used to listen to focus on the family on Christian radio like I was like a 14 year old who would like download and listen to all the focus on the family podcasts yeah and I think I got a lot of these ideas from there of this idea of like a Christian family and I and I looked around and my friends and I and I felt a loss that I didn't get to have that um and so you know I I brought that longing and I brought that pain to God in prayer and was like God like I I want this so badly you know but you made me me for a reason you had me born into a non-christian family and more so a Chinese non-christian family because all of my friends who were Christians were pretty much white so there was like this sense of like oh like in a white American Christian family versus my like not Christian Chinese immigrant family and um, so it's like, okay, God, you made me Chinese for a reason, or for some reason to advance this kingdom and to live my life a specific way because you are totally in control. So you picked me to be in this body, to be, you know, born in this time period in, in Northville, Michigan. For some reason, I got to figure that out. So, of course, being like 14, I immediately thought that my calling was to be a missionary in China because I grew up speaking Chinese at home. And I was like, okay, okay, so that's why I'm Chinese and I need to like live into being Chinese. And, um, you know, I so identify as a member of the Chinese diaspora, specifically by way of Taiwan. So I usually abbreviate that as just saying I'm Taiwanese American. But an artist, I'm Taiwanese American, and I'm a woman. Um, I like enjoy androgyny at different points, and I've always been a tomboy. Um, but I am very much a cisgender woman, <laughs> and uh, and I'm also identify as queer. Um, so for me, there was an interesting journey of uh, admitting to myself that I 
was attracted to women, which at the time I literally wrote, were, this is the exact phrasing I use in my, my journal, I'm struggling with bi curiosity. Mm. And um, eventually, as I continued to like hash out what that meant, um, I came across, you know, I was studying stuff from the LGBTQ community and I was studying stuff from the Christian community and the word queer came up. And the more and more research I did into uh, what queer meant and why people use the term queer, the more I felt like I identified with it. It, you know, there's all these ideas about not being like everybody else and being different um, in a way that wasn't just being different for the sake of different, but actually wanting to construct um, community and relationship in a way that wasn't uh, like of the world that wasn't consumeristic. Um, and I was side B for several, several years. So um, during that time, queerness felt right to me because uh, gay or lesbian or bisexual, I felt like if I talked about myself in that way, people would have a lot of stereotypes um, of promiscuity that they would attach to me or that um, I would only identify as one of those three words if I was, you know, having a relationship with somebody if I was of the same gender or sex or whatever. And queerness to me was this alternative that I could use, you know, in Christian world and in LGBT world um, that just said different, you know, um, and I didn't have to, it was a way for me to explain what queer meant to me instead of kind of carrying all this baggage from whatever the words um, lesbian, gay, or bisexual had. So uh, queer is something that I have identified as for um, 2000, since 2011. So now that's about six years. You, you, you tweeted this morning that you've, you've been thinking for a long time about how you're going to answer that question. And <laughs> I just want to say, like, you rocked it. Like, good job. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, so, um, but yeah, so hopefully, like, the narrative of, like, my, my journey of faith has been a part of each one of those words. Yeah. Um, I yeah. wouldn't, I, I don't know that I would identify using those specific words if I hadn't become a Christian. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so my identity in Christ, as people like to put it, has always been at the heart and the root of all these things. And it's been like truly like the solid rock, the anchor, the, the upon which I could like build my sense of self and calling. And, you know, because it's mostly rooted in that, I have the freedom to explore and to try on different identifiers. Um, I know that when I first was coming to terms that I was not straight, I had then realized how much I had put my identity in being straight because I was now having a crisis of identity um, about who I thought I was. And I distinctly remember, you know, like I'm journaling about all this and, you know, God's this, God's voice, not audible, but, you know, the Holy Spirit ever presence said, I, you know, I was like, God, I don't I don't know who I am anymore. And you know, what, it, I, what if I end up becoming somebody who I don't want to be? Hmm. And God, you know, saying, I've always known exactly who you are, even if you didn't. And that's actually what gave me the courage to admit to myself that I wasn't straight was, was God telling me that I, I would always be God's beloved child and that nothing could take that away from me. And that, you know, even my ability to understand my own sexuality did not prohibit me from knowing, from God knowing exactly who I was. That's beautiful. Um, 
Yeah, as you as you were talking about the word queer, uh, and and that kind of idea of someone being different. Um, for some reason, the word holy came to mind because I feel like I I was always taught the word holy meant like set being apart, set apart. Yeah, yes, and exactly. Like, and those two, like it, I've never made that connection before, but. And I've, it might be a stretch to maybe say that they're synonymous, um, but it's such it's such a, a, a similar concept, though, of being set apart, of being different, queer, holy. I, I don't know. That, that just came to mind. And I think every Christian has, I mean, okay, I don't, I wouldn't use them synonymously. No. But I do believe that each and every queer, Christian does have, in many ways, a calling to be queer. However that may look with their sexual orientation um, I think that their that queerness actually has been a way that the non-Christian world has identified something that the Christian church was always called to do but has lost. Yeah, that's really interesting because like, you're, you're talking about identity and so many of these different intersecting identities. And, and you just you just presented a workshop uh, last week at the Reformation Projects conference in Chicago. Um, all about naming intersecting identities in Christ. Um, Kind of talking about like, and and I've touched on this on the podcast before, but that question that so many people ask, like, why are you putting your identity in so-and-so label? Why aren't you putting it in Christ? Um, I'd I'd love it. I mean, this is the work that you do talking about that. I'd love if you could maybe unpack those ideas of intersecting identities uh, in tandem with our identities as people of faith. Yeah. I think that um, something like, so I did this exercise in the, in the workshop. It's actually a icebreaker called sorts and mingles. And if you've ever played it, you can basically, you, you can sort or mingle and you, and you get in a, either in a line or you can get into different groups. So the, the like, Spoiler alert, it shows you how uh, flawed the use of binaries to arrange your life are. And so we tend to, in you know, American Western modern society, really depend heavily on on binaries. So uh, I, I've been on some other podcasts, Asian America, Tiny Revolution with Kevin Garcia. We've talked about my documentary, Juan Dao which is about bicultural identity is like an Asian American, Taiwanese American experience. And for me, uh, one of the things that I came out of with that project that is a big part of how I think of identity is pushing back at these ideas of false binaries. So, you know, people will say, are you Taiwanese or are you American? As if those two things are mutually exclusive or that it's on a scale and that the more more Asian I am, the less American I am. And this presupposes the idea that these are on the same like level, that it is a, a it's, it's a false binary. So um, I would say it's, it's not a question of like my, so like my identity in Christ, I'm putting my identity in Christ. Well, it presupposes that me naming any other kind of like parts of myself, my gender, my sexuality, my race, my ethnicity, my culture, it presupposes that any of those things is in conflict with who my identity in Christ is, as opposed to thinking of my identity in Christ as, for instance, like as I talked about earlier, the foundation upon which a house is built. But it's not a it's not a house, right? 
So the rock is the is the foundation upon which everything else can stand. And without, you know, with if it's just sinking sand, like truly all of the other parts of yourself will fall down. But you also can't live on a rock. That's not a house, right? And Jesus calls us to build our house on the rock, right? So we we you know, like our bodies are temples of God. They're houses for the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that we nurture our bodies and take care of them physically, also the way we construct our identities in a spiritual metaphysical sense, they're houses too, right? So like, we, you know, we talk a lot about Gnosticism um, in the modern American churches. It comes up, especially in the Reformed communities that I'm a part of. Yeah. And um, and this is how you avoid Gnosticism is through an embodied spirituality, right? Uh, and knowing that you are not just like this ambivalent spirit, soul thing that hovers. You are an embodied being. You are incarnate. You are made in the image of God in a body. So how that body matters, it's the house, Right. And truly, like, you know, people say, like, home, you know, home is where the heart is, right? But the heart has to live in your body. And, um, and you know, you would never look at the boards of the house, the drywall. You would never say, oh, this is what makes a home. But also, it's there's something more to it that the house somehow holds the home, right? It's not only the sum of its parts, but at the same time, having form makes something real that otherwise would just be an abstraction. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. You you are like blowing my mind right now. <laughs> this is like, I, I, I guess I feel like you're making connections that I've literally never thought about before. Um, which like that idea of, of yes, like Christ being the rock that we build like the foundation that we build our houses on, but, but this idea of all of this, like our, our queerness, our other intersecting identities being built on that foundation. I don't know why that's a new concept for me. Cause it doesn't feel like it should be. <laughs> well, it doesn't. Cause, cause you, you know it, you know it right. in your body, you know it in your body already, mm-hmm. but you just, people don't really talk about it. And until you have words, I mean, words are the frame of the house. Right. Like they help give structure to what already exists. And sometimes you don't see those support beams that are behind the walls, but they are there. So, yeah, you know, if you take if you try and take them out, then you start like, you know, load bearing wall, you know, that kind of thing. If you like take away the load bearing beam, then you start to see how it all falls apart. Right. But uh, you kind of don't you kind of take for granted uh, that what you have until you don't. Totally. And that makes sense. Like, I think, I mean, these construction metaphors make sense to me because I grew up, my parents remodeled houses for a living growing up. And Mm, so I've been remodeling houses since I was like (laughs) two years old. And and so like distinctly remember asking my dad at one point being like, well, why can't we just knock out this wall? Like, why does, why Mm -hmm. why does the stud still have to be there? And my dad was like, well, if we knock that out, the whole house (laughs) will go down with it. And I was like, wow. Okay. I think, <laughs> yeah, and being for for me being an artist, this is like all a part of it. Um, when you really start getting into art that in- deeply engages people, want to talk about ideas. So if you study like art history or anything like that, the art if you have like an art appreciation class in college, you know you can't talk about the piece, the painting, or the sculpture or the piece of music without talking about the ideas that were around at the time 
supporting these. But at the same time, like there's ways that those ideas become more real once they're actually in a painting or actually in a piece of music. So like, for instance, in postmodern work, there's all this stuff about clashing and atonal whatever. And it's okay. like you can look at a piece of notated music, but until you hear like literally hear the clashing dissonance right you can't you can't feel that and and so what i one thing a philosophy of mine as a as a artist and somebody who considers them, themselves a, a theologian who works through the medium of art is uh, i always say this is one of my mantras um know your medium hmm. right because the way that you paint on wood is really different from the way that you would paint on canvas and the way that I can play the same song on the guitar and on the piano, and it'll sound very different, and it'll feel different, and the way I'll play it will be different, even if I'm playing the same notes in theory. So you have to know your medium. You know, you can have all these ideas about what you want to say or express in a piece, but until you actually start working with a limited physical thing, whether that's like sound waves or microphones and cables or paintbrushes, or clay, or whatever. It's like you can have all these lofty ideas, but once you start making a thing, it's a it's a it's a thing. It's a physical embodied thing, and all that stuff it matters. All those details they matter. So that's I think that's what helps me stay grounded. Yeah, is and there's a lot to like in common with um, with like painting and sculpting those kind of physical art forms as well as like construction, right? Mm -hmm. Like they mm -hmm. use all the same tools. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, as you're talking about that, you're, you're talking about mediums, you're talking about sculpting. And, and I started thinking about how God sculpted us out of clay, uh, out of the earth. Um, and, and started running with that idea of, of medium of, of bodies being God's medium to work in the world. And your mantra of know the medium and thinking about the different ways God uses maybe queer bodies as a medium that might look different than a straight body, a white body. I uh, I did a workshop a couple years ago at uh, Vanderbilt. They do this LGBTQ conference called Out in Front. And I did like a queer theology workshop. It was like Paradoxes of the Incarnation. And I talked about how the doctrine of the incarnation with all of the paradoxes of who Jesus was, fully human, fully God, yet, you know, body and so, like, you know, the king of all, yet the lowliest servant. All these things that are just completely impossible in many ways for us to fathom. Like truly for us as human limited beings to imagine what it means to be fully human and fully God, it it is forever going to be a mystery and that's the mystery of the incarnation however without jesus embodied without jesus as incarnate god um we would have no no means to understand these paradoxes yet like the kingdom of god is full full of paradoxes and it's an, it's the foundation upon which our entire faith is built that the first will be last and the last will be first and all these things that are like well that doesn't make sense jesus and you're like but then you look at jesus and there's and it just makes sense in ways that you could never understand it no matter how many systematic theologies you write. Right. So for me, like one of the things I love to talk about, um, an example is, you know, if we if like 
if humans are made in the image of God, you know, okay, so actually I, I, I got coffee with my campus minister when I was in college and I was like reading a lot of feminist literature and I just had a lot of questions and I was like, you know, how can we use the male pronouns to talk about God if God isn't a man, if God isn't male? And, you know, he gave me this answer of like, well, we use those pronouns because he been, he probably didn't use the term pronouns, but he probably, he probably <laughs> we use those pronouns because God refers to himself that way. And, and so we just call, our, call God, you know, what is. And I'm like, but why do we do that if God is equally feminine and equally masculine? And he said to me, no, God is not equally masculine and not equally feminine. God is fully masculine and fully feminine, just like Jesus is fully human and fully God. And I was like. Oh, he got a point there. <laughs> like, ah. I mean, we often think of God as being a balance of two different spirits. However, no, like this is my discussion about the false binaries. Mm-hmm. You think the more masculine you are, the less feminine you are. The more feminine you are, the less masculine you are. Instead, we see God embodied fully, like more, you know, the more more human you are, the less godlike you are, the more godlike you are, the less. No, no, no. Fully human, fully God fully masculine, fully feminine. So if God is fully feminine and fully masculine and Jesus is fully God, then that means Jesus in a limb, like in a, in a human body is, has, possesses the fullness of masculinity and the fullness of femininity within Jesus's self. Yeah, that's, oh gosh, that's so interesting to think about because I mean, I think we reduce God or we reduce Jesus to his maleness often. Um, and it, it would be so interesting to, I, and I'm sure this will probably happen as when we meet Jesus in his embodied form, um, to see what that actually looked like. Because I imagine it's probably different than than what we imagine. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a picture for us about how we should think of ourselves and live, though, too, in seeing our like seeing masculinity and femininity not as things at war with one another, but at things to get that not that are fully that are not full without one another together completely. And so everybody, you know, however you identify, there's aspects of masculinity and femininity within you. You might possess them at different amounts, but I would never say that. Um, those things need to be in conflict with each other. And that's one way I would specifically point to queer bodies as uh, as an example of the incarnation, particularly because they there tends to be a freedom, like part of queer liberation is freedom of gender, um, to, to, to be free of this idea that, of that like sliding scale of I'm more feminine and therefore I'm less masculine or more masculine, less feminine, whatever, that you can actually have all of those things within yourself fully and be at peace with them and with and therefore in like rooted in the peace of God who mm. is fully all of those things as well. Because I'm thinking about how often I myself and then how often I see other gay cis men as as we try to push down those feminine parts of ourselves because I think we're enculturated to see them as if the more feminine, like you said, the more feminine we are, the less masculine we are. Um, and I mean, we, we end up like beating ourselves up to try to get rid of those feminine aspects. And that, and that's, I mean, that's a product of sexism. That's a product of so much in our culture as well. Um, but that idea of Jesus being fully feminine as well. I, I've been trying to meditate on that a lot lately. Um, 
and to think about the ways that Jesus describes himself using feminine terms, feminine terminology, you know, mother hen gathering her chicks. Um, there's a lot of older hymns. So the community I was in, which is called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, which is a college ministry of the PCA. That's what I was involved in in college. Um, we sing a lot of hymns. So we have this whole movement of retuned hymns, so new new tunes for old hymn texts. So it's kind of interesting because sometimes I think we do get caught in our own moment and we think that, you know, the way we sing about Jesus and we talk about our faith is the only way to because it's the only thing we hear. And reading these old hymn texts has been just really formative for me and helpful. But oftentimes um, there's like the phrasing like, um, so there's, a, I was actually tweeting this yesterday or the day before there's a hymn I like called on Jordan's stormy banks and um it's like all about crossing the Jordan and going to the promised land and um it's like when shall I see his face and like all this stuff about being in so it's like and in one day well you know one day I'll be there one day I'll cross the Jordan one day I'll be in the promised land and in his bosom rest and I thought Jesus's bosom you know Jesus has a bosom and and I don't know that we ever really talk about men having bosoms. Yeah. <laughs> but Jesus has one and I'm resting in it. So mm. that's actually my Twitter location right now is in the bosom of Jesus, I believe. <laughs> Cuz I I'm traveling a lot right now, so I didn't want to put I didn't want to put a specific location, but you know, for me I'm always resting in the bosom of Jesus. So mm. that's where you'll always find me. Mm. Mm, I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> oh gosh. Um I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of where to go next. Um <laughs> this is <laughs> Well, we could talk a little bit about some of the stuff I talked about in my workshop if you want. I would love that. Let's do that. Um Okay. Yeah, so I mean your your workshop is I mean it was called written on his heart, naming our intersecting identities in Christ. Do you know what hymn I just referenced, Matthias? Well, uh, the, you know, what I'm actually thinking of is the Plus One song. Um, did you ever listen to Plus One growing up? I have no idea what <laughs> okay. you're talking about. <laughs> uh, Plus One was like, they were like the Christian version of like the Backstreet Boys. Um, <laughs> they were the, the boy band. Oh, you were all um, on that. I yeah. know it. Oh, 100%. And, um, <laughs> and, and and they have a song called Written on His Heart. And let me tell you, like, oh. yeah, you should you should go listen, listen well, to that song. Well, you might not know. That's actually a reference to the a, a line a lyric in the in the hymn before the throne of god above okay my name is graven on his hands my name is written on his heart i know that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me thence depart so i sneak a lot of like low-key hymn references in all my regular conversations because i love it it's a really it, it was a really big part of my my community so yeah. So yes, like that that phrase before the throne of God above is one of my favorite hymns, and so you know, um, my name is graven on His hands. My name is written on His heart. I know that while in heaven He stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And you know, there are so many things about who we are, whether it's our racial identity, our sexuality, our queerness, our gender, whatever it might be, disability, all the marginalizations that exist out of, out of their class, there's lots of tongues wagging 
telling us to depart. But there's only one tongue that matters, and that's Jesus who has written our name on his heart and graven it into his hands. And, you know, like the way I was describing, you know, how is my faith formed identity? That's that's what I always come back to is that nothing can take this away. Not, nobody, no one can take away who I am in Christ. And that's where we're always where I start. And it's always where I want to end too because – you know, all ends are beginnings and every beginning is just another end, beginnings, end, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I like, I didn't even get to talk about how I love that hymn and where the name of the workshop came from in my workshop because I was too busy trying to shove so much information into it. So I, I just wanted <laughs> to put that out there for everyone who was wondering why CWN uses so many he, him pronouns for God. It's because I just quote old hymns all the time mm. and I mean, don't have the heart to change the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, fair enough. That's it's, it's, they're beautiful. Like I, I grew up in a church where we sang hymns to a piano, like, and went to that church for years. And there's something so grounding in the old hymns. And so, yeah, I don't blame you. It's, yeah. So the two big ideas we talked about in um, in my workshop were essence versus existence and an independent versus interdependent concept of self. Mm. So these are some of the ideas that have shaped, you know, the last couple hundred years of our society, as well as kind of a global picture of identity in, uh, in the present day amongst different cultural contexts. Mm. So, um, I don't know how familiar you are, Matthias, with um, with existential philosophy. I've, I've dabbled in it, but, but yeah, yeah. Well, do you know? Um, do you know what essence and existence are? As I'm framing them in this way, um, I'm gonna say no. I feel like I have a, a faint idea, but for the sake of, uh, I I don't think I would be able to clearly define those terms um, from a philosophical stance. So I, I would love if you could enlighten me slash us yes okay so there's such abstract ideas sometimes it's easy to just google and find someone else who wrote one line one sentence (laughs) so these are so essentialism says things have intrinsic meaning and existentialism says things don't instead meaning is made so uh the best way to kind of like think about it is a hammer you find a hammer and you're like oh man someone made this hammer the way it is Blah, blah blah. The handle, the the material that it, like the metal on the head that it's made out of, it must have a specific purpose. And then you find nails, and you're like, oh, I think this hammer is supposed to hit nails. Um, so that's like the way you would think of. It's like, oh, so this hammer was created to hit nails. Okay, I understand. An existential view would be like, huh, that's so weird. What's this random thing here? I don't know. Let's see what we could use it for to make it work. I think this hammer works as a piece of art on my wall. So uh, so now the meaning, the meaning of this hammer the, is that like the purpose of this hammer is to be art on my wall. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe I use this art in my wall for other purposes, too. Like sometimes I use it to be a paperweight to hold down other things. But, um, you know, if the existentialism assumes that there is no meaning and any meaning that exists is that which is made. So existentialism's 
is like walks hand in hand with like the scientific discoveries of like Darwin and Nietzsche saying God is dead, all these things, because, you know, for most of the history of the world and humanity, people have assumed that there was God and that uh, and that a higher power or that there was some sort of creator, that there's always been a creator and therefore the creator created with intention. And so once you start seeing concepts of evolution, you have the possibility to even discuss that we could all be existing out of randomness and that there is no creator there is just like randomness and what so then how do you live your life if there is no god and there is no meaning and you know so existential angst is like why am i here why do i exist you know does anything i do matter and and the existential hero is the person that kind of looks into the face of chaos and 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 just does and says, I'm just going to do and figure out what my meaning is through doing things and not be obsessed with like this abstract idea of perfection or that that like I need to discover what God's will is and therefore like do it. And if I'm not doing it, then I'm messing it all up. Um, I think that for me, I definitely, you know, I'm a Christian. Obviously, I believe that there is a God and a creator. So um, I tend to an essentialist view that like I was made with intention (laughs) and that I don't exist out of chaos. I'm not like a random assortment of cells out of chaos and therefore need to like I have random things around me and I need to figure out what they're made out of. And what I can do with them, even though there's no sense that any of these things exist for any reasons. Um, During my workshop, I use the example of like Ikea furniture where like you're like you have all these pieces and you're like, okay, well, they must be here for a reason. Yeah. And And, and then when once when when you have one left over. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Or like, you know, you're like it. But, you know, the existential view would be like, well, all of these pieces are just in a random box and I don't even know if they all go together, but I'm going to make something out of this and and then that will be what it was made for. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, okay. 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 So, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric in the Christian world about the evils of postmodernism, which is rooted in an existential view of, you know, life in the world. Um, but like the so I use example um So just to help people understand, essentialism would say, I am a Christian, so I do Christian things, right? And existentialism would say, I do Christian things, therefore I am a Christian. Hmm. So if we take that, okay, so, you know, people, there was this whole shtick around, I want to say maybe in the 2000s, might have predated that. I don't know. I only converted when I was 13. So you can do the math. But, um, you know, they're saying what makes you a Christian? Does going to church and reading your Bible and praying make you a Christian? Well, the whole thing was, oh, if you go to church, does that doesn't make you a Christian. Just like if you're sitting in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. So like that's pushing back at like, oh, well, if I act in a way, blah, 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 blah then I am this. Whereas like you are a Christian and therefore like, so that's how I thought about it. I converted and I was like, okay, so now what are the things that I need to do that Christians do? What are the, the Christian things? I never thought that reading my Bible and going to church and praying made me a Christian. I, But I suppose that that was because I believed 
you know, what people say you need to believe to be a Christian. Um, but then I did those things, whereas like the opposite of that would have been an existential view. And I think for a lot of people right now who don't know if they believe that little like checklist help doing Christian things helps give their their life form when they don't know what's in the box anymore. So I don't want to like dismiss that idea like a Christian Christian existentialism exists. Like some of the early forefathers of existentialism were Christian existentialists. And I think that they offer a lot of tools for all of us uh, to expand our faith beyond like what we can understand. Um, but I do kind of more operate out of an essentialist view. Okay. So then um, the other example I use, which is really getting to the crux of the conversation is essentialism. I am gay. So I do gay things. <laughs> Existentialism, I do gay things, therefore I am gay. <laughs> and so these are two very different ways of thinking about what it means to be gay, right? Um, and you can see examples of these in the conversations that people are having. So the ex-gay community and a lot of the conservative Christian world, they actually operate from an existential view Mm. of gayness where they say but you're not gay unless you live a gay lifestyle you're not gay unless you have gay sex so you are not gay you're a child of god <laughs> yeah <laughs> um <laughs> which is a very existential way of seeing things very postmodern way of seeing things which is apparently the thing that they hate so much which is why i don't understand why they they ascribe to an existential framework for understanding sexuality Whereas, <laughs> whereas it, does, 90s, it doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> it does, well, that's the thing. It's intellectually inconsistent, Matthias, and mm. I do not accept that. Um, <laughs> do not accept that. And um, the essentialist view, which is most, I would say, almost all like LGBTQ Christians I know operate from an essentialist perspective. They say, I am gay. I am a woman, I am a man, whatever, if you know, if you're trans and you're like, I am this mm -hmm. and everything else. So, the, so, you know, I can just in my head, I think of Kevin Garcia being like my gay lifestyle, you know, like eating tacos and, you know, watching RuPaul's Drag Race, like eating tacos and, and watching RuPaul's Drag Race doesn't make me gay. But I am gay and I, therefore I do gay things. Right. So like it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm doing I'm living a gay lifestyle. <laughs> Um, and that's a very essentialist view, which is actually very intellectually consistent with most Christian thought. So I think that this is something we kind of have to push back at is like the question, the way people are talking about what it means to be gay is kind of stuck in like everyone's using the same words, but they mean different things. Mm -hmm. And so it helps to reframe the conversation. Um, for instance, this kind of is very complicated with people who are bi plus because oftentimes, you know, bi erasure is like, oh, well, you must be straight because like you're with someone of a different gender than you're, you're you know, who you are or you're with somebody of the, you know, the a similar gender of who you are. Therefore, you are a lesbian or you're gay. Mm -hmm. And um, almost every bi person I know is like, well, I'm always bi <laughs> all the time, whether or not I'm with whatever, anybody, you know, and. And that's where an existential view often is very hurtful for people because it that's it erases. It says you only are in as much as you behave. And that's not even true within like like a very reformed identity kind of thing of Christ. It's like where, where it says like, well, you know, you are only a Christian if you act in these specific ways. And it's like, no, 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 you are always a child of God. You are always saved no matter like what you have done. Mm -hmm. 
you are a person, a child of God, you're adopted into the family and Jesus's co- blood covers you, whatever. Right. But instead there's all these ideas about like behavior qualifications. And so I was at a non, like I was at the Vanderbilt, you know, out in front thing and they did a bi pan fluid queer caucus, which I, I attended, you know, everyone was like, I always feel bi- erased. I'm bi erased, blah, blah, blah. Like, and I was like, I was, you know, not dating anybody, not having any sex, my happy little celibate self. And I was like, well, I'm not having sex with anybody. Does that make me asexual? Or does that make like basically anybody who's waiting until marriage and who's straight <laughs> to have sex, who's waiting until the marriage to have sex, who's straight, does that make them asexual until they start having sex? Like once you start flipping, like once you can take the framework and apply it to something else completely, you see how ridiculous it is in many right, ways. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that's, I mean, that kind of gets down to that point of why the ex-gay narratives gained such traction because people were able to say, well, I no longer do this. Therefore I am not gay or whatever. I have been healed. Like the reality is, is like, well, it's still a core part of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And whether, and there's all these ideas about what the, a, a, what a performance of that identity looks like. Yeah. Right. So someone is like, why are you like you? Oh, gosh, I used to get this stuff all the time. I was like, you're not you're basically white. That's something a lot of Asian kids who are really good at assimilating get is like you're basically white. Right. And it's very disturbing and very hard for me to, to experience that. There's also, you know, the inverse of that would oftentimes is like, why are you acting so black or like things like that for, you know, anybody, any race, to be honest, those kind of qualifiers. But they are they're fixated on a very specific idea about what it means to be black, a specific idea about what it means to be Asian. And, you know, you have to ask the question, who gets to define what it means to be gay or black or Asian or straight or whatever? It's whoever's in power. Right. And there's lots of different ways to be black. There's lots of different ways to be Taiwanese, to be Chinese, to be Korean, to be Asian, to be Latinx, to be, you know, queer. There's lots of different ways to be all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of existentialism is deeply tied to a performance, oftentimes of whatever identity that you have, instead of like being getting to know just like that's who I am deep down inside, whether or not I express that in the way that other people think being black means or being Asian expresses that. Um, I know who I am inside and no, like no one can take that away from me or change that. And and that's why it always comes back to like this. I go, you know, I'm at home. I hit the home button. I'm with Jesus. And so whatever, you know, God created me in this way, home button, Jesus, whatever, whether or not other people accept that my Taiwanese-ness, they accept my queerness, they accept my womanness, my femininity or my lack of lack thereof. Like I know who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, like all of the erasure, all of the like kind of performative wokeness, performative Asianness, performative gayness, whatever it is, like I don't I don't feel insecure about any of it but I think that a lot of people especially when you're tokenized that's the whole point of tokenization is that you are expected to perform your token identity in a way that ultimately serves like whoever's in power um and it's like someone's like oh I don't fit in with a gay community because like you know I don't like show tunes and I don't you know 
listened to Lady Gaga and I was like, well, what made you think that that's what it meant to be gay? Right. It's because it was a very specific idea of what it means to be gay. And that's a very existential view. Whereas like, you know, as a Christian, I'm rooted in Jesus and like that's where my identity is. And therefore, like, you know, if I don't carry a lot of pocket knives and like camping and I'm, and I'm not obs- and I don't have cats <laughs> and I don't enjoy Tegan and Sarah, then I'm like, oh, am I am, am I lesbian enough? And I'm like, well, that doesn't really I mean, like for the record, I, I like carry pocket knives and I really like camping <laughs> and I do listen to Tegan and Sarah. But like I, I think sometimes uh, whoever when people feel excluded from whatever communities we have it's because it's oftentimes there's this performant this like performance of what people think that identity means in order to be accepted totally. as opposed to saying we are accepted we are love we know who we are first and foremost and then everything else is an outpouring and an overflow of that right just like people who have to perform their christianity Right. And say like, oh, well, unless I act this way, unless I do this, then like people won't know I'm a Christian. And oftentimes it's very toxic behavior because it's just this like, if can I out Jesus you? Can I out Jesus everybody else? Can I be more whole, more Jesus like than Jesus himself? Like, oh, that's so exhausting. It's like, you know, true faith community really comes from when we know who we are in God. And and then everything else can come out of that as a gift, as an overflow, as a fruit. Right. But like. Don't put the fruit before the root, all that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, I think uh, you know. I think that I think brings up a really important question. Maybe maybe this is the question we could close with. But um, how how is your Devo life, Sue Ann? That's not serious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean that that performative Christianity made me think of that question of like I remember so many times people asking me like how is your devo life as if <laughs> um, did you ever get that question is it is that just me of like list for me all of the ways that you are being a Christian um, like are you reading the Bible every day are you praying every day and that kind of like this is what you have to do in order to be a follower of Christ and. Mm-hmm. It was always about as awkward as these last couple minutes were. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, performative Christianity and then and performing our queerness as well um, and having to live into these kind of roles of of what we think we're supposed to be in order to name and claim these labels. Gosh. We didn't even get to the second part of the workshop, which is an interdependent versus an independent concept of self. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now we can understand why I ran out of time on my workshop. But like, it's not really a complete picture um, without the second part because essentialism, the existentialism is a very Western idea. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I really wanted to counter that with like a global perspective because um, collectivism versus individualism, like you, your identity, is it formed like, you know, people always say, you are who you are when you're alone. That's who you really are. But that's very dishonest because the reality is, is like our communities are a big part of who we are and how we form our identities. And so that's why like the, even talking about like essentialism versus existentialism, existentialism and performative identity, part of it has to do with the way that we interact with our communities, right, and are expected to. So like, you know, you probably 
quote, act a lot more gay when you're around other gay people than you do when oh, you're yeah. with straight people. Yes. And so people are like, well, why are you? Pu-? It's like you're putting it on. It's mm. like you're performing your gayness. And you're like, well, actually, when I'm with other queer people, there's a part of myself that gets to live that doesn't always get to live otherwise. I experience that very deeply when I'm um, in my my like racial ethnic community. So um, a whole different, if you ever watch me literally like code switch languages like English to Chinese, you'll see that I take on a completely different posture and kind of um, personality when I'm speaking Chinese and interacting with Chinese people. Mm-hmm. And it's not that like I am being less genuine or that I'm, in disgenuine when I'm speaking English, it's that like these are both a part of who I am, and not and um and they're not being able to be fully expressed alone. Um, if you're a fan of like the Inklings, oftentimes this is a this is a thing that comes up. I I know it was like C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and like the third guy. Do you know who the third guy was? No. I can never remember his name. Um, but Lewis said that when he, that third guy died, <laughs> he thought that he would get more of Tolkien, that like they would be closer and they have more time together to be friends. But he said instead of that, he actually lost a part of Tolkien hmm. because it was a part that only came out when that third guy was there. Hmm. Hmm. So in many ways, like we can't even fully experience one another without our larger communities. And I think that that's an important way for us to remember that identity is not just like it's not an equation. We can't solve it. It's free flowing. The boundaries are wide, and and like it's not contained into a single person. Like we're not fully alive without one another. And that's like that's communion. That's the body of Christ. Like yeah, you can like take an organ and you out of the body, you can transplant it into another body, but it won't live and it won't do what it's supposed to do without all the other parts. Like well, the lungs, the lungs wouldn't be able to be the lungs without the heart. Right. And the heart wouldn't be able to be the heart without the lungs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yet we think of them as separate entities, but the blood has no, like the heart has nothing, no oxygen to pump if it doesn't have the lungs supplying oxygen. And but the lungs also don't have any, can't even function if they don't. They aren't also circulating, like working with the heart to circulate blood and oxygen. So we, you know, we tend to in Asian culture especially like we're much less obsessed with kind of these like very hard and fast frameworks of everything like separating things things are a bit more flowy there's a more like f- ambiguity like tolerance for ambiguity and uh, I think that a lot of it has to do with the way we understand people and how they they live in community so and this is deeply tied to like our ideas of what liberation mean and what freedom mean freedom within constraint freedom within community as opposed to like everybody has bubbles and we're all trying to get like close but not too close that we all intrude upon each other's bubbles rather that we have to be free together and you know there's this quote from people often attribute it to lila watson it was like if you've come to help me right then leave but if you've come because your liberation is bound up together with mine, then stay and we will work together. And, you know, that's from a group of activists from Queensland and Australia, Aboriginal activists from the 1970s. And it shows just what a collective liberation looks like as opposed to a commitment to individual liberation. Like we can't have individual liberation without collective liberation, but we also can't have collective liberation without like individual empowerment. Yeah. right and yeah. agency mm-hmm. so 
Mm. I hope that that was my five minute version. Yeah. An hour. (laughs) (laughs) That was great though. And like, and that idea of how much we miss out on when we exclude or cut off or, or don't acknowledge uh, the particularity or whole, whole parts of, of ourselves, of other people. Um, Like, I mean, you said like the body will die without certain parts or without, yeah, and and or organs, specific or organs, organs cannot even live without right. one another. Without right? one another, and, and they can't do their job without each other. They can't live without one another. Yeah, and and when we think about the body of Christ and and queer people and and the ways people of color and women color, and yes. mm-hmm. yeah, oh goodness. So I'm going to actually upload my workshop onto the internet once I edit it. So yes. um, so if people are interested in hearing the like in-depth, longer version, um, I have a Google form up and they can just sign up. Awesome. How did, how did they get to that Google form? It is on my Twitter account right now. Okay. Um, I will send you the link and you can put it in your show notes. As I will well. do that. Great. Excellent. So everyone... Watch for the show notes. They're up on MatthiasRoberts.com on this episode. Uh, and go check out that workshop. Thank you so much, Suanne. This was incredible. What a pleasure. I, I do want to hear your thoughts on it eventually. I know that I talked for most of the recording. but Yeah, well, I mean, that's the point of this podcast is not, <laughs> it's not me talking. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sue Ann is on Twitter at Suan Shaw at Suan Shah, S-H-I-A-H. You can find out more about her documentary, Juan Dao, at huandaofilm.com. That's H-U-A-N-D-A-O film.com. Chorology is on Twitter, at Pod, or you can tweet me directly, at Matthias Roberts. If you think Chorology is worth a dollar a month, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash support to keep Chorology on the air. Another really easy way to support Quirology is by leaving a review. Do that in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you want to hear something specific on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. Hope you all have a great week and until next week, bye!